Let's pray together. Father, have mercy on us now as we follow the steps of suffering of your Son, that our love for him might grow large. By your Spirit and your Word now we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this, this past week I got to go to the dentist and uh, it kind of took me back. There was, there was something I remembered from my childhood. I did not see it in my dentist's office, but maybe you remember it from when you were there as a child. Uh, highlights magazine, right? I don't know what it is about Highlights and dentists, but I think most dentists subscribe to Highlights magazine. And there's always a part of this that I remember well. Um, it was this part. Can you advance that slide for me? Because it's not going to advance. Thank you. Uh, what's wrong with this picture? And you try to find as many things that are wrong as you can. You start looking at the thing, and everything is wrong with this picture. The, the, uh, the fire truck is selling ice cream. The dog is wearing fireman boots. There's a door in the ceiling and a swimming pool in the top of the fire. I mean, every, almost everything is wrong with the picture, at least from our perspective, from the perspective of the reader. But from the perspective of the artist, everything is just as he intended. All the wrongs are purposeful. And, and that's why, if you remember the front page of the magazine, they had this little kind of banner. It's fun with a purpose, right? Highlights Magazine. Um, today, I want to walk you through three pages like that, three pictures in the Scriptures where everything seems wrong. Everything we look at seems wrong, but, but behind it all, there is an artist, an author, who has a, a purpose behind it to bring about a greater good. So if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, we're going to close out the back end of that chapter today, starting around verse 45 or so. Jesus is in the garden, still in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. He's washed their feet. He's had the last supper. He's gone up to this garden. He's agonized in prayer over what awaits him, the drinking of the cup of the wrath and the judgment of God on the cross, which will tear him asunder from the Father for the first and only time in all of history. He has predicted his disciples' unfaithfulness, and specifically Peter, he's told three times, Tonight, Peter, you will, you will deny me. And now, Jesus says, see the hours at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him, a great crowd of sword, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Judas is now labeled the betrayer. It, it's his legacy. And he now comes with a crowd. Likely, the language that's used here indicates that it weren't, weren't just sent from the high priest. There were probably some Roman soldiers in the mix. And I wonder, 
says it's a great crowd, not just a handful of people, but a great crowd came. And I wonder if some in that crowd were some of the same ones who were in the great crowd when Jesus entered the city just four days earlier and they shouted, Hosanna! But now the crowds gather around Jesus for a different reason. They are sent by the religious leaders not to adore him, but to arrest him. And they're led, unbelievably, by a disciple, one of the twelve. And, and it all seems terribly wrong, doesn't it? That the crowds who had heralded him now turn against him. That the religious leaders who should have proclaimed him are, are seeking to send soldiers to arrest him. And they're all led by Judas, one of the twelve. It's, it all seems terribly wrong. And if that's not enough wrong to find in one picture, um, Judas had arranged that the sign of his betrayal should be a kiss. And a mark of friendship has now become a mark of betrayal. Even the word Judas used when he greets Jesus, he says, greetings. That word means rejoice. It all seems horribly, terribly wrong. Judas says greetings or rejoice, rabbi. And when, he, when he refers to Jesus as rabbi, he really does tip his hand because the only, the only people who refer to Jesus as rabbi in Matthew's gospel are non-disciples. They, they will assent to him only as teacher. And it reminds me of C.S. Lewis' famous remark where he says, what I'm trying to do here is to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He, does not, he did not intend to. And so Jesus had, or Judas rather has it terribly wrong. This is no mere rabbi that he is betraying. What's wrong with this picture? Everything is wrong with this picture. Jesus says to him, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? It's fascinating to me that Judas in the midst of all this, this betrayal, still, Jesus still calls Judas friend. And I can't help but wonder if he still cares for Judas. Because after all, it, 
This is the one who said that if you follow me, you must love your enemies. Here he is with Judas loving him. And then one of the disciples takes up a sword, attacks um, the servant of the high priest, cuts off his ear. Now, when you read this account in John's gospel, he tells us who the sword bearer was. And surprise, surprise, is Peter um, defending his Lord in the garden. Luke tells us that Jesus healed the man's ear and not only verbally put a stop to the violence, but by his healing actions calmed everything that was going on. Now, this passage comes up a lot of times in discussions about whether or not Christians, followers of Jesus, should be pacifists, if that's what Jesus is teaching here. And while this is an important passage in that discussion, I doubt it's Jesus' main point here. I think Jesus knows, and what's on his mind foremost, is that if he goes to battle here in the garden, it will end here in the garden. If they draw the sword here, it will end by the sword here. And then he dies, not on the cross as a willing sacrifice, but as a, as a kind of political rebel in the garden, a terrorist in the garden. What this passage is really about is Jesus' radical faithfulness to his Father's plan. See, Jesus has already predicted on more than one occasion how it is that he must die. Remember back in chapter 20, before they even came to Jerusalem, Jesus says, see, we're going, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Not by sword play in the garden, that was not the plan, but by crucifixion. And Jesus would not deviate from the Father's plan. One writer paraphrased Jesus' words this way in denying the disciples' swords. He says, it's as though Jesus is saying, I do not need 12 disciples defending me when I have 12 angel legions available to me. 12 legions of angels, some count as many as 70,000 at his beck and call. And it's clear when you read this account, and especially if you go over and read, say, Luke and John, they describe this same scenario. Jesus, though he is the one being arrested, make no mistake about it, Jesus is the one in control. It's his prophecies that are being fulfilled. It's his commands that are being followed. And you read John's account, the soldiers virtually have to get Jesus' permission to arrest him. They fall on the ground before him. He is the one who stays the legions of angels from their rescue mission. Everything is happening according to the Father's plan by the faithfulness of the Son. No matter the greatness of the suffering that waits for Him or His sufficient ability to stop it, Jesus is, don't miss Jesus here, He's the faithful Son. He will do the Father's plan. His prayer in the garden just a few minutes before, it's playing out now. Not my will, but thine. And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And so it seems like, indeed, the crowds who are there seeking his arrest, they sat under his teaching, maybe even delighted in his teaching all week long in the temple. Jesus, though, is he's no robber. He's no terrorist. That was not the Father's plan. Even those now who turn on him will serve the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies. And though everything seems wrong in this picture, it is all according to the artist's plan, the Father's plan. And then all the disciples left him and fled. It's as though even they were fulfilling the Father's plan by their unfaithfulness. been pointed out when Jesus addresses in the next few verses Caiaphas. It says, those who had seized him led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none though many false witnesses came forward. Now they lead him to the high priest, to Caiaphas, the one man on earth who should have been his defender, his proclaimer. I mean, there's a glimmer of hope in it, though. Peter is still following at a distance. Though everyone fled, Peter has returned. And now he's as far as the courtyard of the high priest, amongst the guards, likely the ones who had just arrested Jesus. And the chief priests are seeking false testimony against Jesus. But it says they found none. Just like Isaiah said, there's no deceit in his mouth. And yet, he'll be numbered with the transgressors. And alas, though, two witnesses came forward. And said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Jesus here is fulfilling yet another of Isaiah's prophecies. Silent before his betrayers. Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He remains silent in front of all of his accusers. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Jesus' response here, it's as you say, seems kind of, I don't know, kind of vague to us. But there are only three times that Jesus uses this kind of response in Matthew's gospel. 
He does it to Judas at the Last Supper. He does it here when the high priest interrogates him, and he's going to do it when Pilate interrogates him. The high priest is not in good company here. But Jesus does reveal himself to be the Son of Man who will sit at the right hand of power, the right hand of God Almighty, and will be seen coming on the clouds of heaven to judge the earth. Craig Blomberg says, He is the heavenly Son of Man who occupied the the most honored position in the universe next to the very throne of God, second only to His heavenly Father, and who will return to judge the earth to judge the cosmos. And Jesus then will judge those who now judge Him. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is all the evidence the high priest needs. These are amazing claims, unreasonable claims for any man to make that he would sit at the right hand of the power, that he would come on the clouds of heaven to judge the earth. And he understands that only the Messiah could make that claim, but he's horribly wrong when he thinks Jesus is not that Messiah. And so the council agrees with his charge and the death penalty is levied and just like that, in the middle of the night, Jesus is sentenced to death. And they spit in his face and they strike him, and they slap, and they mock him. And they say, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? They mock him and say, prophesy. But what they don't realize is that while they are doing it, all around them, Jesus' prophecies are coming true. Judas' betrayal, the disciples' desertion, and right outside of their courtyard, in their courtyard, Peter's denials are happening even as they speak, just as Jesus predicted. Jesus then is charged with blasphemy against God, sentenced to death, abused, beaten, and mocked. It's all terribly wrong, but just as God planned. What's wrong with this picture? Everything is wrong with this picture. You know, from long ago, Christians have observed that the spittle and shame run down Jesus' face so that his sufferings will secure for us a chance for us to see his face without shame. Peter, sitting outside in the courtyard while this trial's going on, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, but, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter went out and wept bitterly. 
See, up until now, Peter has been the boldest of all the disciples. I mean, he was, he was the one in the garden who defended Jesus with a sword. He was the only one who followed him down into that high priest's own courtyard, sitting amongst the guards. But now, a young girl, a mere servant, causes him to deny Jesus with a ferocity that must have just surprised him. He moves a little farther away from Jesus to a place a little safer, out near the entrance. And he's accused there by another young girl, a, a mere servant again. And his denial becomes even more ferocious. He makes an oath. A third time, perhaps he's removed a little farther. It says the bystanders now come to him. And they say, because of your accent, we know you're from Galilee and you must be with Jesus. And now he denies with oaths and curses. See, their, their accusation was somewhat reasonable because to not, for someone from Galilee, not to know the most famous man ever to come from Galilee was really unlikely. It'd be like, go over Chapel Hill, walk on the UNC campus and say, you guys ever heard of Michael Jordan? Okay. They know. Galileans knew. He was one of them. Jesus' prophecy is fulfilled. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And there's this kind of sad escalation that happens in Peter's denials. First, he just feigns ignorance. What, 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 what do you mean? Guys, you know what this is like. Your wife tells you to pick up milk on the way home. You forget. What? What? What do you mean? I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? She accuses you again. Now you deny. You never told me. Maybe with an oath. Hopefully not to far as call down curses upon yourself. But that's... That's what happens here. There's this sad escalation that happens whenever you lie in self-defense. It leads from one not lie to the next to the next with the last being far greater than the first. How could this, how could this have happened to Peter, the boldest of the disciples? Dale Bruner has an intriguing suggestion. He says, when Peter protested earlier that he would never deny Jesus, he may have had in mind never denying Jesus before a mob, as he proved in the garden at the arrest, or never denying Jesus before a great court like the Sanhedrin, or in some comparably heroic setting. He never thought of a trial in trivial circumstances, for example, before a servant girl. And then he says, but don't most of our tests of discipleship occur in such unlikely venues? You know, it's just a little lie. It's just a little compromise. It's just a little unfaithfulness. You know, there are actually two trials going on at once. One in the high priest's home with Jesus where Jesus is consistently faithful, and one just right outside with Peter, where he is consistently not faithful. And some have suggested that there's a pointer between Peter's three prayerless naps in the garden to his three faithless denials in the courtyard. As Jesus said, 
Pray and watch so that you will not fall into temptation. But then at the sound of the rooster, Peter is shaken from his selfish defenses and he's broken by his denials of the Lord. John tells us that Peter, the the resurrected Christ, appeared to Peter on the beach and he made sure that he restored Peter not once, not twice, but three times. And legend tells us, it's just a legend, but it has the ring of authenticity about it. There's a legend that says that in spite of that, Peter could never hear a rooster crow without weeping. What are we to learn from Peter's denials? You know, in history, under the great persecution that was to follow by the Roman emperor Nero, a considerable number of Christians denounced other Christians and abandoned their own faith in Jesus in order just to save their lives. The persecution was that bad under Nero. But they wondered, was there any hope for them if they later deeply regretted their cowardice and Peter's story would help them believe in a gospel of a second chance, even for those who deny? And that's the same hope for us. When we deny, there's grace for us. There's mercy for us. And so Jesus is betrayed by one of his own, one of the 12 he chose. He's arrested by the crowds those who heard him teach, maybe even those who cheered him when he came into the city. He's deserted by all his disciples, all of them, every last one. He's accused of blasphemy by the high priest. He's beaten, he's abused and mocked, and even Peter will deny him. Not once, but three times, back to back to back. What's wrong with this picture? Everything's wrong with this picture from our perspective. But, it is just as the artist intended it to be. Twice, Jesus himself would say it when he's in that garden of betrayal. Back in verse 54, Jesus says, But then, how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. And in verse 56, All this has taken place, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. While everyone around him is unfaithful to him, Jesus is wholly faithful to the Father. And through his faithfulness, everything that's wrong in this picture is redeemed for a greater good. The failures are exchanged for the greatest of victories. It is suffering with a purpose. And that, of course, takes us right up to the cross. And that takes us right to this table where we remember together that on the night on which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus was faithful when no one else was. And we draw near to share this meal in memory of Christ's great faithfulness, not because we've been faithful, but because He's been faithful unto death And in love, Jesus now invites you to to come. Though we have deserted him, though we have denied him, though we have been unfaithful, he, he invites us to come. And so he allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed for the unfaithful ones. To make a place for us at his table, among his own people, part of his church, remembering and having communion with the risen Christ, a meal with the risen Christ.
You know, it's interesting. Every one of the 11 disciples who deserted him repented and returned, and the church was built on them, on deserters. That's how great the mercy of Christ is for us. And that's the mercy that invites us to come to this table. At North Wake, the table is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus, who's walking in fellowship with Him. That is, you're willing to repent of your sin and come to the table to find grace in your great time of need. Let's remember together that on the night on which He was betrayed, Jesus did take bread. And He broke it. And He said to His friends, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this cup contains my blood, the new covenant of my blood for the forgiveness of sins, yours. Drink of this also in remembrance of me.